face, uh, but perhaps accompanied with his face on Sky Sports News across a career of 23 years. But today is my opportunity to put Tim Abraham on the other side and ask him about not only his career in journalism that's gone from... Uh, a few years back uh, and now to lecturing at John Moores University here in Liverpool but what he's picked up in terms of the the habits of the elite players the pressures of the tour as well as the, actually the reality of what it's like to work in um, in the media so first of all thanks for joining me today Tim great really really great opportunity for me great to meet you thank you okay now um, I suppose the first place to start uh, as as is usual is to ask you what your route to Sky Sports was because we as a as a public would have seen you on our TVs and taken that certainly for granted over a long period of time but I'd imagine there's a, a lot of hard work and twists and turns to actually get to that, that particular position. Yeah definitely and a lot of luck too Ray. I, I get When I was at school I pretty much knew what I wanted to do and that's not the same with everybody and I, I sort of studied or you know did my sort of degree course with people who still didn't really know what they wanted to do, but they all landed on their feet pretty well. So, but I I, I had a sort of flair I think for you know wanting to work in the media. So I did a sort of degree course that would arm me to do that. Um, but I, I I soon found out actually I'd need something extra. So I did a postgraduate journalism degree. So I did my degree in the northeast in Sunderland, which is great. And then I, I spent a year in Cardiff, which was like a years professional training really doing everything from shorthand to working about the intricacies of local and central government and politics so it was very much a news-based course but that gave me the opportunity to build up more contacts and get more experience and what I'm doing now I mean I'm kind of teaching on a course that I you know similarly that I did but at undergraduate level they're doing all the things I did at postgraduate level so they're they're really ahead of the game so it's great to see that but I guess uh, there was the determination that I know what I want to do. I want to take the best route or get me the best qualifications that's going to arm me to do that. So, yeah, building up those contacts and experience as well. I think, you know, again, something I talk to my students about, uh, it's all very well getting the degree. You'll have that qualification. I think people, and I suppose this is the same in so many jobs, people look for, well, what else have you done? What's that extra bit? So I've tried to build up as much of making the team newsrooms down in Cardiff and yeah. doing little rugby be reports and things and luckily at the end of my course at the postgraduate level uh, down in Cardiff Red Dragon Radio the commercial station down there uh, they said look we know you you know us uh, we do have a vacancy in the newsroom so that was the foot in the door uh, and I really enjoyed that time because I you know I, it was all hands-on you're sort of doing the, the, the graveyard shifts sort of presenting you know during the night to producing news programs presenting and reporting from there I got my own I mean whilst I did news and sport which is great to get that news grounding especially for the way that you construct stories and, and present them I then got my uh, job as the sports editor at 2CR in Bournemouth and that was when Harry Redknapp was the manager oh, down at so that was a great time to be down there because he was so welcoming and you know obviously I mean he's obviously just king of the jungle yeah. now and everything but what you see is what you get with Harry is great you come in to have a cup of tea and all that you know he was so so he was a great manager to work in when the when Bournemouth were sort of in the second division and they had a really good cut run against Man United so they that that really put them on the map a bit so I was involved in some high profile sort of sports Always there, and I did Hampshire cricket when I was down there, and then I came up to LBC and IRN in London, actually just doing sport. And from there, uh, it was to Sky. Um, I it was at a time when Sky were expanding their coverage. Uh, they just got the rights for the Premier League. You know, controversially, sort of in those early nineties. You know, when because it meant that uh, you know the live games weren't going to be on terrestrial TV. So it was a massive sort of uh, story at the time. So I joined them as a very fledgling company. It's just become this massive company and uh, such a big player in sort of televised sport that it is today. But I joined them when it was still uh, relatively new in the game, as it were. So it was a steady progression and it was a sort of series of targets that I wanted to achieve, really, yeah. OK, that's in really interesting because especially people who are, who are younger would see Sky as this ever-present dominant colossus of, of of broadcast media and for you to have joined at the the origin of that was there trepidation that this might be short term because it'll all 
or, or blow up and and be resisted at the time? Well, at the time it was, and there was resistance as well because obviously it's a you know pay sort of a TV service if you like. Who could afford it? Who take it on? And there were two things really for me though. I mean, I could see very early on that I, the Sky was going to become a, a big player. Uh, ironically, on the day that I had my interview to join. Um, uh, the head of football at the time um, it was a bit delayed for the interview. He said, "Look, I'm really sorry, I'm, I'm late coming down, but we've just secured the rights to the Ryder Cup." Mm-hmm. And it was the first, so they hadn't even shown golf before. But it was so it was like, and I thought, goodness me, they've made a little bit of an inroad there. So uh, again, taking that off off the BBC, as it were. So even on the day that I first went there, even to be interviewed for the job, they were making inroads. So I could see at the time, and I think in a football sense, they were always going to be a big player because of basically the airtime and the commitment that they were going to show. So I never felt, oh, you know, is this going to be uh, sort of a successful or not? I always had that impression that they were very ambitious right from the moment that I walked through the door. And, and it's amazing to think, actually, I mean, in the days where ITV, say, had the live rights to show the Premier League, um, uh, but they only showed five live games a year, which is extraordinary yeah. to think even when they had the rights because they're competing with obviously other productions with news or drama or whatever. And this is a, you know, obviously a, a, a problem almost the BBC uh, had as well. So they were a dedicated sports channel who were putting a lot of money into the game. And the message was that we've got all this airtime to fill. We are just going to give it everything, you know, with the live games and all the support programming around around the football, which is pretty much what I did. I mean, I joined as a football reporter and I worked on the football for six years. Um, and it was about the support programming and all the live events that they did. So I got the impression straight away that, you know, it was going to be a, a, a really big and ambitious place. And it was very exciting to be to be part of that. But amazing thing, when I did join, though, almost the place where I go and edit my pieces was literally a, a porter cabin in a car park and it's become this amazing building now in, in West London but I did get a sense straight away that they were very big players right from the off and as my time developed there, even in the early years they were taking on more and more and they became more and more ambitious and it wasn't just about being a football channel it was about so much else as well Yeah, and I think even today when we've got the the competition from BT and they've fought off competition from Satanta and whoever else over the years that what Sky Sports was able to do from the 90s through to now even the the competitors don't really move away from the, the format of it too much and the quality of the, the pundits gets a really big push doesn't it making sure you've got the right experts the people who are good in front of the camera all the different areas there so as you as you you had that introduction in 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 football cricket the rights to that if i if i remember this right, right were were picked up fairly early as well and there was a tour um of the west indies where where sky had the had the rights there which again opened up something completely different for people to be able to see as it happens what's happening in at the time the most challenging venue for any away team to get how much how much later on was it that that you moved over to to concentrate on cricket? Yeah, it's a good point, mate. Because almost before any live football, there was the live cricket that that Sky had that eighty nine sort of tour yeah, to the West yeah. Indies. Yeah, which uh, so again, that's a, so it's ironic that you know cricket was very much almost the first thing that they really you know, really put Sky on the map in many ways because of they're able to show ball by ball coverage and over of an overseas tour. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I um, the it was my love of cricket that almost got me the job of being the cricket correspondent, if you like, because what happened was uh, in the day, and there's not so much a crossover now, but when there was almost a bit of a football and a cricket season, I mean, football goes on for so long now, really. And the way the sky, you know, they'll do pre-season friendlies and transfer news anyway. So it's never ending. But I, when there was a bit of a, a, a sort of a, a layoff from the football. Um, I I got loaned out to the cricket department, and um, uh, which I really enjoyed because they knew I liked my cricket. And um, it for me it was a great chance because it wasn't dealing with doing everyday football news. I could go off and do a shoot for a, two or three days and go and interview a, a county player, cover a county game, do some really nice shots, and do a nice profile piece about a test cricketer or whatever. So I really enjoyed it because it was more of a magazine program that I I worked for called the Pavilion End, and I could just go off and almost spend a whole week over a story. So I love doing that that kind of you know different challenge in a way, and I, and of course it just meant me 
watching cricket, getting to know cricketers, and, and seeing seeing the way that sort of counties went about their job and how the top players of uh, what made them tick as well. So, being a keen club cricketer, I, I was you know I was fascinated by that really. So. I, I was lucky to get that that chance, really. So I I had this spell of working on the Pavilion and this um, magazine program, and then of course the um, the World Cup came around, uh, and I worked sort of full time on that when it, when it was based here in England. So again, that just almost help with my sort of cricket credentials if you like and um, I'll never forget it's where, at a time where it, even it's a time where Sky Sports News now was really becoming you know quite meaningful and it wasn't just about football that Sky Sports News they wanted to you know they wanted basically because it was almost like a vehicle to promote all the live action that Sky had and of course by this time cricket was very big uh, in that respect so they wanted almost daily cricket reports if you like Charles Colville who worked for Sky News as well uh, did the odd report now and then and when he was away on tour he provided the odd report but they wanted something day in day out and when he was doing more studio work uh, that's when they turned to me and said well look you like your cricket, do, do you fancy concentrating on this on full time? So, in fact, it's half my idea because I said to them, look, you, you, do, you do need now with the papers filing every day, with, with the BBC, with Test Match Special, with Radio 5 Live providing daily reports, we should be doing that as well. So I saw that as a good role for me. So I half kind of pitched the idea myself. Yeah. Uh, and and they thought, look, it's going to be important that we had that daily coverage. So uh, after six years of doing the football, it was like full time on the cricket, and that that was that was how I, how I got that job really. And then yeah, we uh, we've grown used now within Sky Sports News. I, I'd imagine so many people listening, it's the channel that they put on as soon as the TV comes on. Here. Yeah, old sets you get BBC One or whatever you put on five oh one or whatever you whatever a mechanism you get it through and Sky Sports News goes around in that incredible loop and um, and that's of course something which BBC ITV like you said earlier with the conflicting demands of the drama the, the soaps and things they just they just can't do and then Sky having that not only the budget but the time to do it so we've got uh, we've touched a little bit on the, on what my, my next question is that if I was to put on Sky Sports News uh, and it's not perhaps the this would be a good good time to illustrate it in December. England uh, have had um, their, their touring commitments. There are other things going on, but it is very heavily dominated by coverage of football, the Premier League in particular. And again, if we were to have a selection of the newspapers in front of us, or the back pages, we would see football from from, from the back page going quite deep into the paper. Um, at this point, cricket is seems to be. Uh, uh, like other sports, has has this 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 chance, uh, which which always seems to be very hard to to take to to try and compete with football, if that's the right the right term. From from your background in covering all kinds of sports, but but predominantly cricket in in recent years, what could cricket? What can cricket do to perhaps not compete with football, but to be the leading sport outside of this global phenomenon that is the Premier League and football. I suppose, well, I suppose you, you'll never get away from you know the success of the team. You know, if there's a successful team, uh, you know that that creates uh, more interest. I mean, uh, I suppose the the, the 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 levels or the spectrum is uh, you know being right up there and being successful, which is almost you know the good news and the good news to report on and say a nation getting behind their team. But when they're doing bad. That's when the criticism is around, and you know it's almost in recovery mode. So being consistent is is really important for the team, and you know the ECBs know this, and you know that that's why, you know uh, that's why they they're very conscious of almost the, the public perception of the team. I suppose too often with England, it's either being right up there. Or you know, or they're struggling, and I, I suppose in a way, you know, sport is very fickle. Fans can be very fickle. Um, readers can be very fickle. In that, uh, they're either the best thing ever, or you know, or the worst. You know, and uh, there doesn't really seem to be the happy medium. Although I'd argue England have pretty much, you know, almost been in that sort of middle line, if you were, because. Uh, amid any setbacks, they they tend to come back pretty well, and um, because there's a, a test series that evolves over uh, a whole summer, if you like, and it's a five day event, if you like, um, or 
or four at least, (laughs) because they're finishing early. But there are so many peaks and troughs and so many twists and turns in cricket. Uh, That's why it was such a great sport to cover, if you like, really. But personality, uh, so success of the team, I think personalities uh, are are really important. and, And, you know, English cricket, you know, craves great personalities. I mean, if you look at, the, you know, your Freddie Flintoffs going right back to the times of Ian Botham, Kevin Peterson, um, although although he shone during that 2005 series when he burst on the scene and England won the Ashes on Channel 4 on Terrestrial TV, he still had a very high profile despite most of his playing career sort of being on Sky. Uh, we've got Ben Stokes now. Now, controversially, um, you know, uh, he's been answering disciplinary sort of uh, proceedings this week by the ECB after after he was found not guilty in court uh, a few months ago, but still had to sort of face up to disciplinary uh, uh, issues there. So uh, he's in the he's been in the papers for the wrong reasons, but but he is uh, a personality. He is someone. He is. That's why almost it was such a big story because he is seen as such a great player and a role model for youngsters too. So it, it's it's about being consistently uh, consistent team wise. It's about producing personalities who are going to be role models and, and promoting a good image of the game as well. I think that's why women's cricket has really uh, been important to uh, to the ECB uh, in recent years. I'm going to say recent months, but um, you know they are professional players now and. Uh, that that's more pressure on them because they're getting the backing to to try and perform and be world beaters. But um, producing a good women's team is going to promote um, you know young girls to play cricket and go along to golf sessions and things. And yeah, I've, I've, I've often seen that scene of you know the girls playing alongside the boys. It's great to see, and there seems to be that enthusiasm there. But um, as you rightly say, it's never going to be football. It's it's never. But what it can be, it can be that banker event, especially actually I'd say and argue in the wind where you know it's cold here and you know um, we're seeing these amazing shots and that again this is what Sky do but they show the live coverage if it's in Australia the West Indies or in New Zealand in South Africa in warmer climes it's a bit of a beacon actually and that's why I think cricket on television does stand out I think it's in what I did, I think it, my reports will pop up amid loads of wall-to-wall football reports. But it's, oh, and now for the cricket and now the latest on England. Suddenly I'm there, it's sun, sunny, I'm, I'm sunburnt. <laughs> and, uh, you know, living up to my reputation as Tomato Tim. And it's, blimey, you know, where's he? And so I think that's why it does stick out. But, yeah. I, you know, I think success of the England team is, is, is the be-all and end-all sure. in many ways, I think. Yeah, and we'd still, I think particularly when the Ashes comes round... Every newspaper, uh, media outlet then does start to to get into it because of the depth of the history and the fact that there'll always be an Australian that says something which can get our teeth into and we can go from there. But that point about the the sunnier climbs that, that, that England go to during the R off-season would present to a lot of people and I'd be say sat there watching it like uh, thousands millions of others thinking oh yeah this sounds like a perfect job to be able to tick off places that be on people's bucket list to be able to go and visit and watch all the cricket whilst they're doing it now of course I can imagine that it's it's not quite as straightforward as that what kind of difficulties or pressures are there twofold here within touring things that for you as a, as, a, as a journalist that you identified, but having worked in close quarters with the players come back as being regular issues with the, the nature of the tours that they go on? Yeah, I, I always, I mean, I, I always had this thing, if I made it look glamorous and easy, you know, I was almost used to think, well, mission accomplished, because if you rightfully say, you know, it's a lot of hard work. It's it was a fantastic way of seeing the world. I mean, I did travel the world. I went to every test playing nation, and uh, you know, the subcontinent Australia and and the West Indies. I mean, you know, a, a, a fantastic opportunity. But with that goes a lot of commitment and a lot of hard work. Really long days, and I I was always I'd, I'd be the last now to even say, oh God, you know, we were working all ends of the day because I, you know, because you were doing what you're doing was almost a privilege anyway. But uh, aside from the other media, because we were. T- TV and live reporting became really important um, uh, to Sky in the, in the back end of the years I was there. I, it was all about, 
you know, I had to get to training, you know, sometimes two hours before the, the players to set the scene. So the players would start training, say, 9.30 or uh, arrive at a ground at night. I'd be there at seven in the morning for, you know, depending on the time difference, but almost teeing up the days, uh, what was going to happen for Sky Sports News because it was all live and we had the technology to do that. So it's like I was there first. What's happening there today, Tim? Who are we going to hear from? And Sky would want the team arriving uh, and so you had to be there. I mean, and there's this sense that you just couldn't get caught out. I couldn't risk arriving just before the team case. They were get there early. And, you know, if I missed the shot of them arriving, if there was an injury concern, you'd want the shot of Stuart Broad getting off the bus. You know, is he an injury doubt? So the pressure to not get caught out was really important. And, and the thing about Sky was, is it's such a committed and ambitious place. You knew that... Um, you know, you you had the professional pride that look, I'm not going to miss out on any shot. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, you know, it's almost more stressful thinking I, you'd miss the shot or you get there a bit later than actually almost having the hassle of getting there. So, but and almost being at this cricket ground or at nets before anybody, and sometimes it being dark or whatever. But that was better than actually thinking, oh, I'll cut, I'll cut it fine, or I oh, know I don't need to get there that early because you can guarantee the one time you kind of had that attitude you know you'd, you'd miss something so uh, and I would say there was pressure there because of the way that Sky operated because it was a, such an ambitious place you knew that anybody else at that organisation they would be doing the same if they were if they had to be at West Ham training they'd be there really early to get the arrival shots to to make sure that nothing was missed to be there on call so that if there was a live report needed you were there in good time and well prepared and and the thing was because you are you know, obviously in the media, you have your photographers, you have the written guys, you have the radio guys. That You know, to be fair, the written guys and the radio probably just turn up just before the interviews were going to take place. I mean, that's probably two or three hours after training or they get there for the back end of training. But because we had to film it as well, you had to be there for everything. And the great thing about England was you didn't have this 15 minute hit like you get in football and, and, and rugby, I'd say, where you get a few shots and then you had to get out because then it's a closed session. Cricket, it's open all the time. So you're there doing training, you're doing live reports, then you've got to do the press conference with whoever has been put up to speak to at the day, another live report, then you've got to put the package together, send that back. Sometimes uh, you might need to go off to a TV station to feed it. So, it, you know, it, they were really long days. But I kind of, you kind of operated in this bubble and you got a lot of, you got a lot of... Um, professional satisfaction from sort of you know getting that stuff back and I always used to love feeding stuff back and knowing that the, knowing that it lo looked all good and uh, you know you could actually at the end of the day almost put it to bed but it, they are really long days and you kind of um, uh, you just get used to it really there's no other way around it it's almost part of paying the price is the wrong way of putting it but it's almost what goes with the territory for being in these nice places yeah so your mm. your length of day but probably longer than the than the, the players absolutely yeah. yeah yeah i mean not not to rub not to sort of have a go at the players or anything but and it often always me because i know the way the sky work away we had to work you had you heard um oh god the players that you know they're they're uh you know they're away from home for two months or something and they don't and yeah that's fine but i used to think my god but you're they're playing cricket. They're doing something they love. I mean, we, you know, we are as well. But they are playing. They're not. They're not doing what actually a lot in the media. The you know the media really worked hard to make sure that every aspect was covered. You know, and the guy, even the written guys. I mean, covering test matches, they'd be there early. Uh, and once, almost once the test match finishes, that's where their day almost really starts they've got to write up their reports they've got to get the quotes from the press conference they are there all hours of the night um and, and they, they might leave about uh, sometimes they have to leave because they want to close the ground mm -hmm. you know and the floodlights have all gone off if it's a day nighter so the media do work really hard and because cricket goes on all day the, the cricket media work really hard so so when i heard oh yeah it's tough on the players yes it is and of course we didn't have the pressure of having to perform or but i used to think because i love my cricket i thought yeah but god they're playing cricket and we are we're covering them so i always thought our job was a lot harder and our challenges were a lot harder because and we weren't you know, looked after as players. You know, we you know we we haven't got all the backup there, all the physios, all the medical treatment, and that sort of thing. If you're ill, you sometimes you had to just get through it, um, and so you don't get that support that the players 
have, and you, and that, you know, get this in other sports as well. Quite rightfully so. I mean, they, they are they are they are players at the, the peak of their powers and their and their profession. But you know, when you're covering events, and not just in TV, just for all the media, uh, there's a lot of work that goes into it, uh, and it, and it is hard. Yeah, because I was thinking, particularly of of say being in you name whichever country, say Australia, and the, the, the natural perspective would be to say, well, OK, Tim's out there, and yeah, all right, he's got a, the test match going on, but then, if, you know, there's the, there's, surely there's the chance to go and look around, but surely then the story emerges just as much between the test matches, who's injured, who's been dropped, who's gone out on a pedalo, who's doing this, <laughs> and so on. Exactly, yeah. So the, the, there's not quite that, that respite there. Um, was there... And I, a particular, either an individual tour or in general, a particular location that you found more testing than another one than any other. I'd, I'd have to say Bangladesh because uh, it was just the whole. It was everything that you experienced in India and Pakistan. Uh, you know, I was lucky enough to go there in Sri Lanka. Well, Sri Lanka is almost a bit more of the glamorous sort of continent, but you know, fantastic place to go. I mean, a place you go on your holiday uh, to be. You know, but Bangladesh was just. It was manic. It was hot. Uh, it was difficult getting around. The hotels um, were, when you're getting used to, you know, being at, well, when you needed hotels where you could work, that was challenging because, you know, the, the internet didn't work and that and that sort of thing. And they wouldn't, uh, in the earlier days, I will qualify this because, I mean, you were staying in some quite very, very basic accommodation that wasn't always clean. And it, you just felt such a long way from home. It was just so... Uh, it, it, but you, you just kind of got on with it. And uh, that was the same. Uh, to be honest with you, I mean, the players had the better of the deal, but even for them, you know, things were pretty basic. And then, I mean, I, I, mean, I had some amazing stories when sort of Jeff Boycott was uh, telling us stuff that some of the some of the hotels and conditions they had to put uh, I was going back in the sort of 60s and 70s. Quite incredible, really. But um, I'm not... Uh, but it's a fascinating country in that. But I'd have to say, when you're working and you need to be as fresh as you can as well, where you just need to be able to just rely on uh, decent facilities, uh, Bangladesh was really challenging. Um, but actually, it's one of the last places I've visited, actually. And since I returned, they've got amazing business hotels now. So it all ha- in fact, it, I, felt, I felt almost I was cheating in a way because it wasn't the, the rough and ready Bangladesh that we, we'd all become used to. And it, it was, um, the, we stayed in these magnificent hotels, which ironically, actually, were probably more expensive to stay in uh, than, than, uh, than uh, in Australia or nice. New Zealand. So that was the irony there. But... Um, but one story sums it up for me, actually, because when I was in Bangladesh in the early days and it's the days before live stuff really kicked in. But every day at the end of one of these long days, I had to go to Bangladesh TV to feed my story back. And uh, it, it, the traffic was so bad and it used to take me about it took me about an hour and a half to get there. I'll be an hour there feeding and then another hour and a half back. So it almost added sometimes four or five hours to the end of the day. Sometimes I'd be getting back at. Uh, you know, sort of 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock in the morning um, just to get the stuff back. And then on the last day, I was with my cameraman and we, we, we had a bit of free time before our flight. Um, and we thought it'd be just nice to get some nice GVs of the city, some nice, just for future, you know, just to have a sort of uh, banker shots, really. And we went up on the roof, the hotel guy took us up there and everything. And I saw this big, honestly, just down the road, I saw this massive aerial. And, you know, and it looked like this TV set. And I said... That can't, don't tell me that's Bangladesh TV. <laughs> Honestly, I, mean, I almost could have walked it. And then the guy said, oh, yes, that's Bangladesh television. I said, and, it, and it, I could see it so close, and it took me an hour and a half to get there. I mean, I, I didn't have equipment. I thought, God, I could have walked it, but I was crawling along in this, in this taxi just to get there. And it was so close. It was so disheartening to see that after all those times I did it, it was so close. So that, but do you know what? That all add to the, the chaos, uh, the noise. Uh, the heat, the pollute—all it added to the just being somewhere so far removed than anything you got used to. So I actually, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, yes. Uh, now, for the for the players, of course, you, you've you've alluded to the fact that their conditions will, for, for the most part, be more comfortable. But with the the, the trade-off that there is that, that that pressure to perform and the insecurities being away from home, issues around whether they're going to keep their place and 
a whole myriad of things that exist there. During your your time following the the England team and reporting on them, there's a couple of examples of where players have had very high profile, um, heavily reported instances of of having to leave tours due to injuries that years before people wouldn't have recognised in the same way. So when we, we think of, say, Marcus Cheskothic and Jonathan Trott, these two people who did leave tours because of issues with their, their mental health, what was that like reporting on, considering particularly in Marcus's case, that was something which really hadn't come out in that way before? No, that's right. And, um, I mean, it was such a big story at the time because he was... Again, sort of at the peak of his powers, and you know he's just been such a success for England. And uh, uh, you didn't really know that um, you didn't really know that it was that bad, or you, it didn't click because he because he was able to sort of perform well out in the middle. It, was, it came. I mean, I was really surprised, and I was really really saddened by it as well. And I do remember actually. I mean, there were a couple of things that I can I can almost then think back and think, oh, I you know I, I can see why or that's happened or. There was a time where we were in um, Pakistan. It was soon after the earthquakes uh, had hit hit the region, actually, and we were in Royal Pindi, and um, England went there soon afterwards, and they did some relief work and some support work for victims and things. And they went to a uh, we went to a hospital, and we filmed this, you know, players doing the wards and things. And, and Marcus, he just almost broke down, um, and it was because there were small kids there who'd been injured and. He just had started a young family and everything, and it, it, it was quite—it was almost quite an upsetting. In, it, and he was put up to speak about, yeah, well, we're here to support what's going on and everything. And um, but you know, there were almost tears in his eyes when his. And I actually—I've never ever done this before, but I—I I just stopped. I just—I said to come look. I said to look. Do you want to do? You don't have to do this. And he went, no, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. And he carried on. He did it really well, but. Um, um, so you could see sometimes, you know, things that re- you know that he got upset by. And I remember when we first arrived, almost the first thing. Again, you don't think every time, but you go off and do a, an interview with a player having just arrived. Here we are in Pakistan, whatever. And, and he was. I remember seeing him sat um, in the corridor of the hotel because I think he, he was immediately on uh, almost skyping home to talk to home. Um, and there was an incident where his uh, again we we're in Pakistan where his home got broken into and. Um, he was really upset that he was all this far away playing cricket, and you know, with a, you know, he had this concern about the safety of his family and everything. And he didn't lead the tour, but there were thoughts that he might. But then he stayed on. So when when he left an Ashes tour, or you know, that you, you, you kind of think about, oh, you know, there are, you can see that the, you know, there are things that you put two and two together, basically. Um, but I, the thing I thought a lot about that, and it was the same with the Jonathan Trott thing, is that when we, when there's the media conference, Marcus has gone home, and um, you, you know with, with the with the problems that he's got, and almost they're going through the symptoms, and and you're sitting there and you're thinking, God, that well, God, I feel like that sometimes, or you know, quite a lot, because again, I think, and I think I, I don't know if it's the same. I never really discussed it with any of the other media guys, but or, or I, I have with one guy close to me at the BBC, but. I said, God, you know, all that thing, you know, we, we, we have those same challenges and, you know, we're away from our families and, and, and we're working all hours of the day sort of thing. And so it, it, it's very easy to get sort of, you know, quite down about things. But you, you do operate in this bubble. And, and the thing about doing the new stuff is things change every day and, you just, you know, you do your report, next day you just move on, you know, mm-hmm. and you're just moving on the whole time. So that almost keeps you going. But you are in this bubble where... You don't actually take get a chance to take a step back and think, "Gosh, I've done six straight weeks here and I haven't had a day off or whatever." But you, it, time goes by very quickly. But you don't take stock of that really. Yeah. So, yeah. so what I would say, covering those events, it does make you think about your own your own mental health, if you like, and your own well being, and and uh, whether you are fit to do the job. Are you are you doing a good job? I check, my, you know, is everyone right? I'm like, do you think I'm was that? Was that piece of camera okay? So then you start almost checking yourself, and I found I sort of sort of did that, but because um, you, you're just very conscious about doing the best you can, but knowing sometimes that you're up against it a lot of the time. Yeah, and I think one of the things that you've you've said there was reminding me of something that I certainly have heard from 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 things that Marcus has said, and that other players, and, and indeed anyone in any walk of life, have said that when there may well be something that is an, a, a, a problem within them in terms of it, what's happening in, the, in their mind. 
circumstances can sometimes feel like they're quite suffocating, particularly if you, you can't see uh, the end of something. So your example of saying, well, with the, in the journalist's perspective, you're able to go on the next day to, to a new story and perhaps that in some way manages to do it. I can just, um, being quite a long way away from someone like Cheskothic in terms of my cricketing ability, but I can try to maybe see how he would have felt stuck in the middle of a series and he just has this repetition of a net, a game, a net, a game, back to the hotel, not really wanting to engage with others because he's he's feeling like the last thing he wants to do is, is socialise, but then feeling that he has to and there's the pressures like that. So, yeah, these tour environments, um, and you, you get this from people who get kind of burnt out when they... Uh, they, they work away from home and maybe it's really linked to stress in Marcus's case something that w- would on reflection when people look at those symptoms would say well actually yeah that's a that's something which you, you do need some some help with and those symptoms can can vary in their severity and yeah people have these abilities to be so resilient to things and look back and think bloody hell actually this was going on and, and I somehow got through it whether the rhyme or reason was for that. Um, who was it in, in on that theme that if there were, if there is any other, any players from your your time that you would see even from from whatever distance that did come across as being particularly resilient and strong and able to to cope with the pressures and, and demands. And I will just just sort of qualify this by saying, in in no way am I saying that someone like Marcus Cheskovic couldn't couldn't cope because of course being at the elite level like he was he he was more than capable mentally he he has an illness and an injury which can afflict anyone but but aside from that it, as a general point which player or players stand out as being the the most resilient the toughest mentally yeah i mean just going back to almost our most recent retirement if you like Alistair Cook really who who had great success, I mean, go to an Ashes series, but when you're the captain and losing 5-0 and uh, what you had to put up with, you know, from the Australian media and everything like that, I mean, um, Andrew Flintoff went through that as well, um, perhaps more controversially afterwards. But I, I, that's someone who, yeah, who, when, when everything's almost going against you on the field, he was the leader and the buck stopped with him. He showed a lot of resilience, and and you and you could say, well, that you know reflects in the in his batting as well, and the way the way that he was uh, as a character. Um, so yeah, really, I mean, I, I pick out the people who could still almost keep going and perform, or just give everything they could um, when when things are, are going uh, going badly. When, when you're on a you know when you're winning, or when when England won in Australia for the first time in years and years under Andrew Strauss. Uh, I mean, it was all not very easy, but it was all just, it was a good tour. You know, it was a good, but it's, it's you almost find out about the characters and this might come back to almost the, the Kevin Peterson whole scenario when, when England got beaten badly, where things could get tense in the dressing room and, uh, and, and almost, you know, almost true characters can come out. If you can keep your head or just keep uh, an air of respectability about, um, and just be yourself, when things are going wrong, I think you know they're they're the tough players. So Alistair Cook was right up there, who suffered a five 0 defeat, but came back and became an Ashes winning captain, and, be, and just continued to be the prolific player um, that he was. So um, yeah, I, I put him uh, right up there. I mean, bowl bowl. I mean, going back to someone like Graham Thorpe as well, who you know since you know he, he's been quite open and honest about you know having. Having issues and um, uh, but he was such a, a, a nuggety, gritty player. He'd, he'd he, you know, I remember when you know, like well, that's when England won in Pakistan and Sri Lanka in that one winter. Uh, you know, uh, amazing rig. But someone who is that, it, it's almost like it's it's like they fall back on their talent as almost uh, as relief. You know, it's almost it, it, that's that's where they can really focus and uh, get on with their job and actually, you know, performing. Really well. It's almost that provides the relief, if you like. It's almost when they're not doing that. That's sometimes where you see, it, you know, it, it could be more difficult. But Graham Thought was a really sort of resilient character. I'd say actually, no, Steve Harmison as well, um, a, a guy who came into the England team, and there were rumours about he didn't like going away on tour. He got homesick, and there were lots of things before he really sort of cracked on with the England team. But 
I remember on an, an Ashton, he, you know, because he, he was in the one-day team there, he was literally start to finish right the way through, no problems at all. But when England was sort of, you know, suffering as well, so there are people that can surprise you. But Alistair Cook, Graham Thorpe, Nasser Hussein, a really resilient character. I mean, like, as a yeah, I mean the captains who who do have to bear the brunt of England failures, if you like. Uh, I, I mean, that's why Na- that's why I think Nasser's very good in the media now on Sky, because he's just a good analyst and he just talk- talks really openly and honestly. And you can see he did exactly that as England captain. He would say, he would come out with things like, we were abysmal out there today. Yeah. And you think, my God, this is good stuff. And then, But then you were waiting for the but. Uh, I think we've talked about this before. Then came the but. I know my players can get us out of this. Yeah. We are a better team than this. So he would be honest, but he would always come back and back the players. And those kind of interviews were refreshing. So, um, um, yeah, the resilient ones are the ones who can always keep their head above water when things are sort of falling apart around them. Yeah, Yeah, and and those those people that you mention, I think, from from what what I've read or or, or heard about each of them, and, and Hussein's a really good example, that they're all people who spend a fair amount of time reflecting and analyzing and and working out what they can they can use from a situation to then move forward and when we talk in terms of mental health and and developing people's uh, mental fitness or whatever term we would use big part of that is people being able to kind of understand themselves and and work out things that they can change things that they can't change and and straddle the the line between that um a big part of 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 what your your role was seemingly again I've got images in my mind of you just off to the side of the nets people hitting them there and I was looking at that thinking you know one goes the wrong way you're getting one in the <laughs> back of the head um, but from that three quick ones um, in terms of the nets and the training facility and I'm thinking in terms of anyone who's who's playing in a club environment and, and interested in what they do there does any is there anything that, that stands out as being a particularly novel approach that either a coach or a, or a player would do um, whether that's more recently or or at a time that they did it and then that changed things going on from there Yeah, and it's funny because by thinking about the way that teams practice, I'm not just talking about England here but of course when you're covering the opposition you see how other teams work as well so I mean, there are two things, A when you're up close and personal at nets um, when you're with the camera and you can get very close, uh, you are the thing that I used to enjoy was actually seeing how good these these blokes were. I mean, it's amazing, you know, seeing how quick they're bowling and seeing how hard and how well, you know, someone like Ian Bell would time the ball. I mean, it's just great to watch, even in practice. I, and I, because I love my club cricket, um, I, I just loved seeing you know, every ball I was, I was fascinated by. So there was that. And I always had this theory. I say to club cricket mates, I said, do you know what? The game, I got a theory... I think the game or the game of cricket they're playing is it's not the game that we play. It's it's just totally. They are so fast. They are so. Uh, they are so quick. They do hit the ball so well. Um, I think. I, th- I my theory, I think it's a completely different game. One that we don't really understand, and we can only watch on. But then I saw then. Um, but then. But then when you see practice and you see, oh, yeah, they're they're going through what anyone anyone would do at nets on a you know on a Wednesday evening or you know before the game or whatever. And then there was the, the little um, the little um, things, the innovative things. You'd think, oh, that's a good idea. I remember Bob Warmer with the Pakistan team when he brought them over had this marble uh, sort of slab that he they they. Did, chunk around the country this big marble slab and they wheel it out and he was just, he'd just be there and he just chucked out you know just short pit just chuck the ball onto the slab for the for the batters you know for the short, short pit and it flying everywhere but in, they're getting right behind the um getting right behind the ball and that it's just the all these little innovative ideas i think well god you could do that down at nets on yes. you know there's a little idea like that and just um and, and the bowling markers that thing and when otis gibson the england bowling coach just put out markers to you know on a length all these little things you think oh yeah that's a really good idea and just the little way that the the wicket keepers operate uh, and, and almost making the best of i remember when we were in pakistan alex stewart and uh, paul nixon uh, we're just getting the ball chucked down onto a roller, a bit like a you know slip cradle sort of thing. But they were just using a roller and um, 
uh, you know, the ball would divert everywhere, but they're just making use of little things like that. And so I, I always love little seeing things like that. Or they're, they're thinking about the whole time, but there wasn't a day that go by that they, something would be willed out. I mean, you, this goes back to almost Merlin, you know, the bowling machine and trying to replicate Murley and, and Shane Warne. But at the time when bowling machines were in their infancy, you thought, God, you know, and they, they used bowling machines for fielding practice as well. And, um, and um, yeah, and uh, just for the wicket-keeping duties, you know, uh, the, uh, uh, the coach, you know, Trevor Bellis would just be there with a the stump and just just playing the ball. And, and obviously, the, you know, Joss Butler or Johnny Bairstow would, uh, would protect, thinking they're going to... But all these little routines, uh, I did think so. Yeah, that, that is... Whilst these are the top blokes, they're doing anything that, you know, you could introduce or do uh, at, a, uh, at a net session, you know, in preparation for a club game. Yeah, yeah. Um, diff- tough question, this one, but across all of that time, is there anyone that stands out as being the hardest worker in training that seemed to go above and beyond and put that extra effort in which made them stand out from the crowd? Yeah, I would come back. I was the cook again. He he was always yeah, meticulous, really. Um, the the as a team, um, they're all put, pretty much put through their paces. So they did things pretty much uh, uh, as a team. But I mean, Paul Collingwood was a a, a, a very meticulous. Tra- tra- you you almost get the impression that is the the guys who felt they probably needed to work harder than the others. Uh, who had maybe had an, an, an amazing talent? You, ha- you had your amazing talented players who probably, I mean, you know, who, who weren't, I don't know, that weren't, the, you know, the, the quickest or the fittest, but they had this. I mean, that, I suppose that goes back generations in a way. But you, you get you, the people that you do notice, um, uh, the people who put in the hard yards, and probably the people who think, well, I need really need to work at my game. I think Paul, someone like Paul Collingwood came into that category. Very fit guy, but he would be, you know, he'd just work at his game and. He made, you know, you know, his brilliant fielding as well. I mean, you see those amazing catches that that he took, but you know, they were practice those. You know, you often hear that in commentary, actually. You know, where where players, you know, the runouts, you know, hitting one stump, um, you know, that that is something that they work at. Um, and um, but uh, yeah, Paul Collingwood, I remember really sort of uh, working on someone as well. Going back to say Paul Nixon, who. You know, who sort of toured with England, but obviously wasn't an England regular. But yeah, again, a fit guy who, again, someone you know, is behind Alex Stewart in the pecking order, just made the most of every chance that he got, and he, and actually he, he was quite successful with the England One Day team in Australia. So uh, there two guys. I mean, Alex Stewart himself, someone who who uh, who I would pick out as you know, he really took pride in his fitness. Actually, just really, mm. and he had to, you know. Um, because you know he was he was you know he was the all rounder really for England you know as, as the wicket keeper then he was someone who who really worked at the game so they were people who were quite interested in their diet and their nutrition and their fitness uh, I mean going to someone like Jack Russell I mean you know he would literally bring all his food over and just you know live on baked beans and mashed potatoes but there was a, there is a there is a story that actually all he ate for you know a couple of months being away and it was literally mashed potato and sort of uh, okay. chicken and that's all and, and that's all he, he just had that every day but that's what he he just didn't want to get ill or anything mm. like that so you know he'd not he'd not be the one who'd be sort of out on the tile sort of thing so so there there there, there are quite a few and there are others who just who didn't like training you know and I mean it's you know but it it, it was part of their job and you know you have to acclimatise and everything but it's the people like you know if you can think if you think of you know any cricketers out there I think we can all think of them if you think of someone who's in the team but probably feels they've always got something to prove or they're the guys who really work at their game they're, they're, they, they tend to be the ones who are resilient physically and work really hard sort of behind the scenes mm, it's, it's, it's something that when you say about the generally speaking the that it will be done as a team so it's harder to stand out because they've got that more structure of yeah. course the, the the further down you go to when people are doing it for a hobby it's it's much harder to impress on people that we're going to all train like this because there's any excuse going to perhaps not do that um as we move towards finishing the, the, of course the purpose for for cook collingwood any of these people to have practiced those skills uh, religiously in the nets or on the training field was then the idea to make it a bit easier when they get out there in the middle but no matter how hard particularly in that 5-0 that, that we've spoken about or many of those England tours perhaps going back to the earlier part of uh, of your career covering them there was 
certainly a lot of, uh, of of low points and and criticism thrown at England players and technical staff and and everything really, which is uh, as much as it's part and parcel of the game, must be something that's that's tough for them to deal with. But from your perspective, um, in your role. certain parallels with the the players in that you are performing live you don't get a chance to edit it you'll be judged on your most recent performance and all of these things and with the advent of social media if you're curious you can look and see what someone said and hidden behind a screen or a phone people seem to be much more liberated in what they they say which they might not say in person so how did you um, develop your, your skills of being able to deal with Criticism, or whether that's from, sorry, whether that's from from other people, or perhaps like you've touched on the, the the self critique of wondering whether you've got it right. How did you manage to get that so it was a, a positive that would would make you want to to move and improve and, and make make uh, positive changes, but also so that you didn't let it then affect your performance? Yeah, it's a really good question, and uh, I think when you sort of almost said that self criticism bit, I mean maybe that's something that's come over from talking but I suppose I I, I I was probably quite hard on myself I, th- I think I still am really because you always just want to do the best so I was always I probably worried a bit more about what other people thought and worried that they think things weren't weren't as good as they should have been but actually they, they think they'd say it's fine so many times I'll ring up and say oh was that a piece okay was that interview okay and there are people who just think yeah it's fine yeah anyway so uh, and people don't aren't thinking about it as much as you I kind of lived every question and answer sort of thing or every package or every piece to camera was that okay and, that, and they go yeah of course it was yeah fine anyway so uh, about to, and you know yeah. they were so so I probably worried about it more myself than than others did in a way but yeah that comes down to I suppose wanting to be professional, wanting to do the best job you can, and uh, yeah, just worried that. I think you thought because um, you, you mentioned that word performing, you are performing in a way when you're when you're doing lives or you're doing those reports, and you know the buck stops with you in many ways. So you you want to get it right, you know, and um, uh, not from a point of view of oh well, they're going to get somebody else to do it. I never thought that it wasn't oh well. It, if they don't think I'm very good, they're going to get someone else. I, it, that wasn't what I thought at all. I just wanted to make make it look good, really. Yeah. Um, so, um, so yeah, there was a lot of self criticism, if you like, and self worry, if you like, that uh, that everything was okay because yes, like the players, you are performing, you're doing a different job, but you are you are very much on the spot and you, you're having to get things right. So, especially when there was a, a you know big story, as it were. So, uh, but I um, I suppose that, that yeah. When I heard people almost dismiss it, or as if, yeah, you, well, what, what are you worried about? Then that was almost, oh, well, if they're not too worried, then then it's fine. And, mm. uh, you know, that was almost my reassurance, if you like. Yeah. We, we had this thing where, and I, 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 I'm sure it happens in a lot of things, but the thing that used to really annoy me, if you like, was that you'd, you know, because the way we worked and, you know, you do nice pieces and you do good interviews and, you know, you work all end of the day, um, th- because things moved on so quickly, you'd never get any feedback but the only time you really did hear anything was when something went wrong or when that time where someone wasn't happy. And I always thought that was quite a negative thing. But listen, I'm sure that goes on. You know, you can't I'm sure you can't praise somebody all the time, every time they do do their job, if you like. But but it was always a thing that, you know, if the phone would go and you see it's ringing, you think, oh, God, you know, what's gone wrong now sort yeah. of thing, because you never, ever heard from them. So it was there was this negative thing that you were only here if it if it was a, a negative thing where it doesn't actually take take a lot to say to someone. I tell you what, I really enjoyed your piece the other day. So um, so uh, that, that's why I was quite conscious of my cameraman. I'd say if they got a really nice shot or we did a nice edit, I'd say that was well, well mate, it's really good. I really you know it was re- really that that looked really nice. So I I was always quite conscious of doing that. But there there is this negative thing. I suppose you get it in sport. It's negative when things are going wrong. It's negative around the England team, or there's criticism, or there's news. If if they're not doing very well, someone fails yet again, you know, sort of thing. So, but that so it's slight reassurance. Yeah, yeah, everything's fine. What are you worried about? To moving on quickly again. It's almost the, the sort of uh, fishing chip paper scenario. Yeah, that's done. Now you move on, and it's tomorrow's story, really. Yeah. Yeah, which can go both ways, can't it? That you've you've not got and this has been a bit of a this has been a, a theme that's been useful to to touch on that you you always have the next broadcast don't you or tomorrow mm-hmm. which if you approach it with the with the right mindset that's a really 
really positive thing to say well whether it was good or bad I've got another chance tomorrow and it'll, it'll keep going on and just the same as if things aren't going so well it's easy to think oh, I've got to do it again tomorrow and it might continue with that so yeah that, that's interesting the, the thing that I'll finish with and this is something I've come across from speaking to journalists uh, of whether it's print media broadcast media wherever that and this, I don't, I can't think of too many examples across other professions where this seems to be the case. That, and you've mentioned uh, uh, someone that you've got on particularly well with who works or worked for the BBC. So outside from that, we'd say, "Hang on a minute, someone at Sky, someone at BBC, what are they doing? Yeah. Talking to each other?" Yeah. But it does seem to be that, uh, and we've got some experience um, with a, a, a couple of the guys who who were involved in the campaign who 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 were. Um, print journalists for a living and, and they'll be at press conferences waiting to, to see whoever and sharing things and, and, and so on with people from other papers and they'll probably know those people who work in the, the, the same department of another paper better than they do people who work in their own and, and I'd imagine the same exists within the broadcast media, the other people who are covering cricket to whatever extent or, or the sports you'd know them better than perhaps you know someone who's doing the rugby union or the rugby league. So you think it, would it be a fair thing to say that the sort of the team that, that exists there, say the people who are covering the cricket, you, you are a team even though the fact you're working for different employers? Definitely. Uh, there's this uh, uh, you're, you're all in it together sort of scenario. And I think that's as well... Uh, and you had that good relationship with the players coming back to them with that. They You know, they can look... You can look uh, Stuart Broad in the eye at Lords in the glamour of Lords, and it's oh yeah, nice, nice at home series and that. He can look you in the eye and think, God, he was, he was in, in that rundown hotel in Bangladesh, or he was out there. When so, I, I think that counted for a lot. That's why, um, that's why I thought you know being with the team, day, you know, you know, day in, day out, tour in, tour out, whether it was the glamour of Australia or Bangladesh, um, that you know the players could look your eyes. Well, look, he's been out there. You know, he know, he's been there with us. He saw. He saw how difficult the conditions were, or whatever. So I think you gain respect for him doing that. But there is a real in it together kind of um, uh, world, really. And you are rubbing shoulders with the other media guys. Um, and, and you're right, it's funny because I did a recently an interview. I took a student along to the rugby league, actually. We went to uh, Salford and uh, we did a little trip there. And I touched base with a former newspaper colleague uh, who, uh, who did cricket to us. He now works for the rugby league. And we had a bit of a Q and A with the with the uh, student, and, and we're talking about his career and everything. And uh, he said, "Yeah, it's a funny situation because you know there I was, I was working alongside Tim or whatever, and I'm around mates of mine who are in the newspapers." But he said, "Basically, we're just out there to shaft each other, <laughs> but, but but we are there and we're having dinner together, you know." And uh, so he said, "So it's a funny world in that you are working with competitors. You will want that story, or you want to get that exclusive, but uh, at the same time." Um, you're, you're having to sort of uh, get through tours together and you are friends. You will go out to dinner together, sort of thing. So uh, I think, in a way, a lot of a lot of stuff now is quite stage-managed media-wise anyway. I mean, you get your player of the day and you pretty much, you, you can pick up a paper and know that... I mean, I, I remember when I've not been on tours, I think, oh, that was a... Uh, you know that was a, uh, a Johnny Bairstow day. In that he was the guy put up for interview, and, you look, and in every paper it's the Johnny Bairstow interview sort of thing. So he was he was almost the guy who's been put up. Um, but um, so it becomes a bit of a diet. But you know, but there are almost that creates the more pressure for the, for the others to get those exclusive those exclusive stories. Um, so, but it is a funny world. Yes, you are. We're, and me working on the BBC guy. I think we were slightly different in that we were broadcasters. We pretty much, you know, we were we were after the same thing. In a lot of ways, it's t- ticking the box of just getting the player, getting the press conference done well, and getting the stuff back. I mean, you know, that that, that was almost your, you know, I mean, that's kind of mission accomplished in many ways. Um, but uh, but you work alongside because. Because Sky would often do stuff live, I'd often kick off press conferences. It'd be my voice you hear first, and that, and then because the B wouldn't do it live, but obviously they still wanted the stuff. So you'd need to say, well, look, I'll I get the first five questions. If I ask him, I'll ask him about this or that, the team news, or you know, and then and then if he said, yeah, well, then I'll come in and I'll ask. So there are things we all want covered. It's just a case of so it looks professional. You're getting, you know, you're not interrupting each other. You know, you know, you get those questions. So there is a lot of working together like that. But yes, ultimately you are. Um, you are competitors but say with me and the BBC and Sky Sports News and the BBC I mean sort of BBC News there we were kind of 
we kind of had different audiences in many ways. You know, Sky Sports News wanted to hear, wanted to hear now the latest and what's this and that. But the big could take a bit more of a step back and do more of a thing where we wanted the, the immediate stuff. What's the line now? So, so yeah. So it can work, though, yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. OK, well, it's been fantastic to chat and we've covered so much ground in terms of, for, for people out there who've, who've seen yourself and others in that role now, I'm sure, have a much greater appreciation of... The, the skill and, the, and the, the hard work that's involved with it as well as some of the, the insights to what the players are like on those tours and I think all the way through it we've, we've spoken about a lot of things which are skills and talents that are developed about just how situations are dealt with and sometimes we can't put our finger on what is how people do it we just sort of instinctively find a way to do it and maybe trust ourselves that the next day is is the new one and, and anything can happen and anything good can happen as a result of that, which is a, a nice message for us to have. So, Tim, thanks a bunch for joining us. And uh, Thank you. I really enjoyed talking about it. It's been good. We'll be back with another of these as soon as we can. <laughs>